Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's February the 11th, 2022. As always, I'm talking to you from San Francisco on the west coast of the United States. If you want to map that in your mind or imagine a map uh, on the west coast of the United States, long-time viewers, regular viewers of the show know that I'm particularly interested in geography and the ironies, the politics, the disputes in geography. We had the great geographer Tim Marshall, the British-based geographer on the show recently, on the power of geography, on 10 maps he thinks makes sense of the world. And then last week, I had an equally distinguished geostrategic thinker, Daniel Jurgen, an expert on energy, uh, talking about the new map of energy and geopolitics. It seems to me as if um, we tend to favor the West over the East. Um, we had um, uh, a show recently about Winston Churchill suggesting that Churchill exaggerated the importance of the war on the Western rather than the Eastern Front. Jeffrey Wheatcroft argued that. He's the biographer of an interesting new book on Churchill. And I recently, actually uh, earlier today, uh, did a, an interview with uh, Dara Horn, who wrote a book, People Love Dead Jews. It's a polemic about anti-Semitism. And she seems to suggest that perhaps people love dead Western Jews rather than Eastern Jews. Um, I'm talking maps and the West and the East because that's what we're talking about today. Uh, recently, I had also William Dalrymple on the show. I've uh, written a wonderful new book about the East India Company and the way in which the British looted India. Her book is called the His book is called The Anarchy. Uh, and at the end of the show with Dalrymple, it was a tremendous show for people who haven't seen it yet. Um, he recommended a new book with my guest today. Um, who uh, who has an important and indeed prize-winning new book out. It's Kat uh, Jarman and her new book. And it's actually not entirely new, but it's relatively new, called River Kings, A New History of the Vikings. Kat is joining us from uh, Wiltshire in the United Kingdom. And in a sense, Kat, this is a book about geography, isn't it? It really is, yeah. It's how... Uh the world in starting in the 8th century started to stretch out and started to, to make new connections between East and West and and especially how things like rivers formed a, a crucial part of that and, and the impact that it had for hundreds of years to come. I mean, when most people think of the Vikings, they think of uh, wild savages ravaging Western Europe, but your book reveals a very different historical analysis of the Vikings, both in historical, but above all else in geographical terms. You present the Vikings as being equally important, if not more important, in the East than in the West. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a story, that's a part of the story that's really been neglected for, for a number of reasons, actually. I mean, part of it is just the, the Anglo-centric uh, sources and the fact that a lot yeah. of the written sources are based in places, they're coming out of places like England. Um, but it's also to do with their later history. So the fact that under the Soviet Union, research that involved Scandinavia in the East was really not very popular. And there's been a really bad connection between academics in East and West. So we've tend to sort of forget about it. But actually, 
The reality is that the eastern part of the Viking world was at least as important as the western part, if, if not more. And I think that's something that we're, we're really starting to get uh, open our eyes to now. And the evidence, especially new scientific evidence, is showing that this was this is really a part of it that we can't ignore. In other words, and maybe I'm oversimplifying as I tend to do, globalization existed well be, before the 21st or the, of the 20th century. Kat, um, you're a, I guess, a historian, but you're incredibly eclectic. You're an archaeologist. You're a scientist. You're a new kind of historian. The work you did in River Kings is as much archaeological and scientific as going to the the old books, because there really aren't any old books on the Vikings. So what you did was dug up remains, investigated them, and then proved that the Vikings were as, as important um, in the East as they were in the West, that they spent as much time in the East as the West. What, what kind of history do you do? Yeah, so I mean, I wouldn't call myself a historian at all, really, technically. I would be calling myself a And I apologize if I insulted you. It's just that your, well, book, yeah. your book has, has been awarded all these historical prizes, although, as you suggest, it's not really a conventional history. No, I mean, it's just because um, I think it's quite important to emphasize this, that if we do just look at the historical accounts, then we really aren't getting the, the real picture. So we do need to look at those other sources. And uh, one of the things I do is I, I'm a bioarchaeologist, which means that I study human remains. So I use scientific analysis of human remains to tell me about things like diet and dating, but also migration histories, because we can tell so much from a human skeleton and that actually unlocks a whole new uh, sort of evidence, really. But if we do look to the East especially, it's where the artefacts and the objects, not the written sources, that are really telling us the extent of that connection and other sort of scientific evidence. And when I first started this, when I first started looking into those Eastern connections, it was a, it was a fact that I came across in a book that said that um, if you look at Scandinavian or Viking artifacts, actually more of them are found in the East, so especially in Russia and also Ukraine, than are found in the West. So although we think of this Viking story as a very Western one, actually outside of Scandinavia, far more objects are found in the East. And that tells us something because, you know, in our popular conception is really Viking story is a Western story, but the objects are telling us something completely different. So that's a sort of really key starting point, I think. And, it's and it astonishing, really, really. It's as if Americans suddenly discovered that the country had been populated not by uh, Englishmen, but by Chinese people. You yeah. were originally, um, Kat, you're from Oslo. You grew up in Oslo. Um how, how what's the response been uh, in Scandinavia to your work? Has there been a kind of cultural pushback, any surprise of people responding in any way to the idea? And I know that the Vikings aren't exclusively Scandinavian and not all Scandinavians think of themselves as Vikings. But it's a very interesting uh, archaeological artifact, a broad cult cultural archaeological artifact that you've dug up. Yeah, no, so the book's come down really well. Actually, the research has come down really well in Scandinavia. It just came out in a Norwegian translation uh, this autumn and it's, it sort of became a bestseller there as well because I think it's what I've tried to do with it is actually bring together all the new scientific evidence with those stories and say, okay, let's reassess now because methods and technology have moved on so far, even just in the last 10 years, um, that we can suddenly tell a new story. And, and it's, it is telling us all that, it's giving us that evidence. So 
although we did, we knew that there, there was an Eastern connection. And certainly if you go to places like Sweden, um, it's a site called Birka, uh, just outside Stockholm, where there's so much Eastern material. And so to actually really explain that, put the context around it and say, well, here's what the new science says, here's how we can reassess those old sources, that's gone down really well, because I think it's something that people want now. So, you know, those methods aren't entirely new, they've been around for 10, 20 years. What we haven't really done until now is actually put it all together. So put the written sources along with the scientific evidence, which, which is kind of what I've tried to do. And, and that really is showing just how important those connections were. Yeah. Um, in the Financial Times review, which was William Dalrymple, uh, surprise, surprise, the, the uh, headline is uh, on your River Kings and he, he gives the book a wonderful review. Were the Vikings really violent? I guess that headline could be interpreted in one of two ways. In other words, were they really violent in the way that we always imagine them to be, or were they at all violent? How would you characterize the Vikings? What drove them, to excuse the pun, for this incessant travel? What what made them go east on these rivers? What made them end up in Constantinople? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. It's a difficult one to answer. I think there's there's pushes and pulls, certainly. Certainly pushes that that take them away from Scandinavia. You have quite constrained environments and they are quite small countries. They're very um, geographically, you talked about geography earlier on. So especially Norway, um, although it is a very vast country size-wise, it's, it's quite limited in where you can live, where you can farm, where you can gain wealth. So there's, there's sort of reasons there that, that bring people out of it. But it's also a very harsh territory, um, climate-wise. Uh, it's quite difficult to survive. So you, I think so you it's get... Like there's Norwegian tourists and Swedish tourists who you see uh, on the Spanish or Italian coast in, uh, in the spring. Yeah. Yeah. So you sort of, you have the, the sort of, I think you have people who know how to survive in different environments. So they can go to very cold environments. The fact that they have to use boats around the coastlines mean they're very capable of going overseas. They're capable of going down rivers. So you have a sort of very capable, very sort of outwards looking. Um, and then you have all the riches that you can get, and especially in the East, because what really becomes one of the big uh, driving powers is uh, access to silver, which they get out of the Islamic world. So it's Durham coins, especially, that have got very pure silver. And silver is something that you can't get in Scandinavia. You can't really get it in Northwestern Europe at all until a bit later on. And it comes in huge quantities. And I think the violence issue is a really interesting one because I think, yes, they are violent, but... That's but everyone only... was violent in the, uh, in the 11th century. Right? Yeah, absolutely. They're not necessarily any more violent. What I think they are is they're very adaptable. And I like to think of them as sort of entrepreneurs, really, in a way, because they mm. are very capable of adapting to whatever is needed. So if that is violence, that's great, uh, because they can do violence. But if they don't need to be violent, that's also very good. So they're very good traders. Uh, they're very good at taking advantage of uh, political turmoil. So we see that a lot in England, especially uh, in the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. If there's if there are issues, internal issues, they they move in and take advantage of that situation. They do that in the East as well. Um, they're traders. They're really, really good traders as well. So you have people who can, you know, they're physically very capable of going to new territories and adapting if that's Greenland or Iceland or England or Mediterranean or, you know, Eastern Europe. So they're adapting. sort of in an odd way, Kat, and maybe... Uh, maybe this is the peculiar nature of, of, of your business as a, a archaeologist or historian there. They're very 
they're very familiar to us, these Vikings. They're, they're very contemporary. They don't seem that different. We did um, uh, a show with Parag Khanna recently. He has a, a wonderful new book out called Move. He's a Indian-based, uh, a Singapore-based uh, uh, American-Indian uh, geostrategic thinker. He suggests that we're continually moving. The Vikings are exhibit A on this, right? Yeah. Absolutely. And as you said earlier, this is globalization. This is an early part of that. And um, it's people realizing that they can go very far. They can connect, they can get objects and they their society can connect with those. And so you see this. And, and I think the other thing that that sort of myth is of these very sort of pure, simple um, Scandinavian societies, but actually they've got so much input from different cultures and they seem to they seem to adapt to that really well and live alongside them. And so you have them going into the Christian world when they're pagan, you have them go into the Muslim world, um, and they seem to be able to coexist really quite well. Sometimes we see that that actually, uh, for example, when they go to, to England, that ends up in conversion. If they need to convert, fine. Um, and I think it's something about that adaptability adaptability and the fact that they, they can exist in so many different places which just feels very modern to me we've got i think quite often this idea that in the past we were very set in their ways and, and they had to sort of be pagan yeah. or be Christian. but actually they're not doing that all the evidence is showing that you know they, they just take advantage of whatever they need to take advantage of so the past perhaps isn't quite as foreign as some people might like to think certainly kat jarman's new book River Kings, A New History of the Vikings from Scandinavia to the Silk Roads, um, is an incredibly impressive piece of work. She's a bioarchaeologist and a field archaeologist and a historian, and the book is a huge hit. Um, after the break, Kat, I want to talk, uh, talk more about this uh, eastern expansion of the Vikings, what they got up to, and the significance of all this in terms of our thinking about the Silk Road. So hold tight, everyone. We'll be back in about 60 seconds. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it. But I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening 
to my show. Now, back to Keenon. We're back with Kat Jarman, the author of River Kings. Kat was introduced to me by um, a William Dalrymple, um, the author of The Anarchy. He was on uh, the show at the weekend. And uh, Kat and Dalrymple have something else, an incredible thing, actually, in common. When uh, Dalrymple was a young man, I think 18-year-old, uh, he took part in an archaeological dig in Repton in Derbyshire. And uh, this dig, um, Kat, is part of your narrative. It's an important piece of the puzzle, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. And uh, it's a site that I've spent a big chunk of my life uh, working on, actually. My PhD research was all there. I've been working on it for well over 10 years now. New excavations, but also looking at excavations. So this was a Viking uh, a Viking dig. Yeah, that's right. Viking so, remains. Yeah, so it was a Saxon monastery originally, which was attacked by the Vikings in the year 873, where they set up a winter camp, this great Viking army. And it became a really, really important part of the Viking world. And in the 70s and 80s, excavations there found evidence of this camp and they found a number of graves, including a, a massacre of a charnel grave uh, with nearly 300 bodies in it that are most likely... And that's your thing, uh, digging up dead bodies and interpreting <laughs> them, figuring out who they were and where they were from. Yeah, so doing the analysis, doing the lab work on them, we can now work out with quite good confidence where people grew up, what sort of diets they ate, and that tells us a lot about who they were. So, by the way, Kat, I, I don't want to. I want to come back to this, but how did you get into this in the first place? Was, did you grow up wanting to be a uh, someone who dug up dead people? Absolutely not. No, I didn't know you could really do that. Uh, I was interested in the Vikings growing up in Oslo. But I didn't realise it was is a job I could do until I watched a documentary on TV and uh, and just sort of fell in love with it really. And the actual human remains, I like getting close to people of the past. I think you can do that even much if more they're dead, especially when they're dead, because <laughs> then you can tell slightly different stories about them. And the science is very new, so there was a gap there really when I first right. started. So, so back to the Repton dig. Yep. So the reps and dig had all these bodies that nobody really knew who they were. So part of my work was to try and, and prove or try to show that they were most likely this, this Viking army. But among that, among the evidence that actually when William Dalrymple was there in the 1980s, um, in that huge grave, which is a great army grave, there were lots of objects, artifacts. There was an axe, you know, weapons, all sort of thing. There's also a tiny little bead. There's a small carnelian bead that was found in the grave. And um, everyone forgotten about it. I found it in 2017 in the archive and realized that that bead had actually traveled all the way to Derbyshire, so deepest, darkest middle of England, uh, from Gujarat in India. And it done that in the ninth century. And that really was the start of, of the whole book, saying, well, why was this bead from India in, in Repton, in Derbyshire, in the ninth century? And how could that happen? And what does that actually tell us about the links between East and West? So that was a sort of starting point. So in the, in the book, I, I trace those connections and I try to explain how it ended up there, what route it took and what that what we now know about those connections. We've uh, we've done. I've never actually had Frank Pan on the show. I need to get him. Actually, he's the author of the Silk Roads: A New History of the World. Peter Frank Pan, distinguished Oxford professor. But the Silk the Silk Road has become a, a rather sort of fashionable, sexy theme these days. Were the the Vikings on the Silk Road? What was their relationship with this? Did they get to China? No evidence they actually got to China. We don't know if they got to India either. Uh, the furthest east that we have any 
evidence that sort of Scandinavians traveled really was the, the sort of eastern shores of the Caspian. We also know that they went to Baghdad. So but they got, got to uh, Constantinople, right? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Constantinople was a big part of the Viking world. And in, in fact, right. it became one of those big places that especially young men would go. There were so many riches to be had there. And you could go, the route down is, is through the, the rivers of Eastern Europe ending up in the Black Sea, where there's just a short hop down to Constantinople. And the trade there was, was very important. We have Scandinavians also uh, acting in what's called the Rangian Guard, which were the sort of elite mercenary bodyguard of the Byzantine emperor. Right. These um, were the, the Byzantines and the, 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 the Arab dynasties of, of Iraq. They were much more advanced culturally, politically, economically. What did they think of these Vikings? Did they think of them as we do, as bearded savages no absolutely not i mean they were clearly very highly valued for their their martial skills because they were being employed specifically as this very elite high power bodyguard but they were also trading so so now we're talking about scandinavians we're also talking about these people who become known as the rus who are sometimes described as the eastern vikings but actually they're sort of the foundation of what becomes the russian state or and russia and ukraine um and they trade very carefully we've got lots of treaties uh, lots of information about how that trade took place. So they were very valued trading partners, uh, but they had a sort of weird love-hate relationship. So there's quite a lot of attacks as well that have been recorded by these Rus, these people uh, on Byzantium. So they seem to sort of try it on, which is it's that sort of entrepreneurial <laughs> spirit, I think. What was the political say... structure of the Vikings, particularly when they were on the road? We've done a number of shows about the sort of proto-democratic infrastructure and traditions and cultures of indigenous peoples of one kind or another. Um, were, were the Vikings very much of a, of a top-down political system? Who made the decisions? Was it the, the chief warrior, the king? Yeah, so they, are, they seem to be chieftains, uh, which are working on a very small scale. So you can't talk about the Vikings as an empire or anything like that. Some people do. Some people want to write books about the Viking empires. But that was completely wrong. We don't get sort of big states until right at the end of the Viking Age, when Norway, Sweden, and Denmark develop, and you get people like uh, Knut, for example, who, who does rule over several of these countries, but that's not until the 11th century. Certainly not what's happening in the East. You seem to have very regional chieftains. You have sometimes um, somebody who, who, who heads an army, for example, in England, you've got the, the great army that's got several local kings and then earls underneath them. Um, we don't quite know because we don't have the written records, but they seem to be operating on a much smaller scale, but they are connected as well. So it's very regional. Um, you have people who are involved and then co cooperate and collaborate. People join these forces um, without really us having the knowledge exactly of how it existed. But it's, it's a much smaller scale. Um, so it's not it's not big, big nations. It's not big kingdoms. Um, but well, they were global travellers. You also note, I think, that they founded or Dublin, or they certainly spent some time in Ireland. What about these stories, some of them probably mythological, about the Vikings sailing to the Americas? Has any of your work dug up anything about that? Yeah, we do know that they did reach North America. Um, there is evidence of that. I mean, actually, just, just a, a few months ago, that was uh, a new Radio Carbon Day. It shows exactly when that happened. So we now know that in the year 1021, there was a, a Viking or Scandinavian presence uh, in Lonsa Meadows. So we, we do have some evidence of that. We've got a lot of saga literature, which is written down in the 13th century, which really is 
if you think of a sort of historical fiction, so it might be based on reality, maybe not. But there's archaeological evidence, certainly, of, uh, of settlement in, in Iceland, in Greenland, um, and in Canada. So we do know they reached that far. Um, that settlement wasn't very successful. It wasn't very long-lasting. We don't quite know why, but certainly they, they did reach that far west as well. What about the etymology of the word uh, Viking? Uh, according to Wikipedia, its etymology is uncertain. Is that right? Who invented the term and why Why is it stuck? Yeah, it's a good question, actually. We do see it used uh, a little bit contemporarily, but it's not used about the people. So the way that we, you know, who we call the Vikings is certainly wouldn't have made any sense in the 9th and 10th century. Um, so it comes in really later. There is one version of it that means someone who go, go, goes on a raid or a journey, uh, possibly a sort of pirate raid. Uh, mm. But really, we have no idea uh, what that would mean. I think at the time, they thought of themselves much more regionally than that. So you don't have a Scandinavia. That makes no sense. That's These are all modern terms. But it's it does work, though, um, as a word in a sense, because there is something in common there we do have something happening at that point in time we have such some uh, you know the norse languages are being used and spoken and spread around um and there is the, you know this art there's there is a cultural trait there that that has something in common but what they call themselves we don't know uh as you know in the united states i'm sure you know in the united states names can be quite controversial the um the washington football team got into trouble for calling itself the Redskins, they had to change their name. There is another football team called the American football, that is the Minnesota Vikings. Is this acceptable, um, Kat? Should uh, Minnesotans be thinking about changing the name of their football team? Might it offend Scandinavians <laughs> like you? No, not at all. We are absolutely happy with us. And I think there is a, obviously there's a, there's a big Scandinavian uh, population of population of Scandinavian descent there as well. Um, so I think that's absolutely fine. I think what we need to not do is just to think that there, this is, this was a race that called us the Vikings. People also want to do DNA tests and say, am I a Viking? There isn't an ethnicity. There's not a gene that's a Viking gene as such. It's more a cultural trait. Um, so and there's a sort of cultural identity. So what was their language? Or they just spoke the language wherever they ended up? So they, they spoke Anglo-Saxon in England and Norwegian in Norway and Swedish in Sweden? No, so they were speaking the Old Norse language, uh, which is the foundation of what then later becomes Norwegian, Swedish, Danish, and also Icelandic. Icelandic is very close. And Anglo-Saxon, I would assume, yeah? There's a lot. Well, no, so they are related. They're Germanic languages, both of them. But actually, English has had a huge impact of Old Norse. So there's a lot of the words and also the grammar that we use today in English that comes from Scandinavian and that comes from those Viking settlers. So words like egg, sky, knife, cake, those are all Scandinavian words that the Vikings basically brought with them to England and that's why you're using them today. So, and that's the impact of the settlers. Um, we don't interestingly see that same thing in the East. So uh, although we have all those people going to the East and going to places like Russia, Russian doesn't have lots of Scandinavian elements. Why that right. is, I don't know, but uh, probably a different sort of interaction, uh, I think. Well, certainly uh, the, the Vikings Global Connections, you were on the History Podcast talking about this. It's, it's remarkable and what you've dug up quite literally and metaphorically is really important. 
Are there one or two things, um, Kat, that we still don't know that you'd love to know? What are the great mysteries now about the Vikings that even nosy historians like yourself don't know? Yeah, there's a lot of things we don't know. Uh, one of the things is we don't know the numbers we're talking about. So in England, although, as, as I said, we know the Vikings had such a big impact, so we know um, enough of an impact to, to sort of actually change the language. We still don't know how many, if we're talking about 10, 20, 30,000 people, or if we're talking 200,000 people. What's your that guess means, in terms of numbers? I can't really tell at all. I think the, the best estimates are in the sort of low 100,000, something like that. Which is but, very small. I mean, you know, I'm talking to you from San Francisco. Bay Area has, I don't know, 8, 10 million people. You're in England. You know, London has 10 million people. So we're still talking about a very small community of people having such an immense influence culturally, politically, and indeed the people who spread around the world so successfully. Yeah, absolutely. But then, you know, populations were obviously considerably smaller and, and the Scandinavian people uh, were much smaller. And I think the small populations, one of the suggestions of why the North American settlements didn't actually succeed was that it was a very small group of people to start with. So these are people who came from Greenland to try and settle mm. um, in, in North America. But actually, the population to start with was so small. Maybe, maybe they needed yeah. a religion. You know, the argument, Max Weber in particular, that Protestantism was so productive. Were the Vikings religious? What was their faith? Yeah, so they seem to have been uh, pagan. So we have we don't actually know uh, is, is the reality of it. Any sources are much later. They're from after conversion to Christianity. So we don't know the day to day. We know a lot of the deities. It doesn't seem like a sort of um, a religion where you have to. It's very prescribed religion. This seems to be very personal. So we have lots of different gods. Uh, right. you know, and I'm sure the, the Vikings. You're making the Vikings cat very attractive, very fashionable. I think that idea of having many gods is also um, uh, an, an attractive one. Your new book, uh, River Kings, A New History of the Vikings from Scandinavia to the Silk Roads, really is a new history. And uh, it's, it's breathtaking and, and very refreshing. I can't end without uh, talking about one other thing, Kat, that you've been busy doing. Uh, I was in the East Island a few years ago, a remarkable place. You also have a theory on the Easter Island as a, as a, a bioarchaeologist. What's your theory on the Easter Island, where those statues came from or the peoples there? Yeah, so my work on Easter Island has actually been to look at things like diet and use of the environment. So if you're familiar with the collapse theory, people like uh, Jared Diamond's approach, yeah. uh, which really is blaming the population for misusing uh, their resources. The evidence, all the overwhelming evidence is now actually showing that that is not true. Um, but actually, this is a population that was was very well adapted to a very difficult environment. Um, and so actually, the, their disappearance is is traced to, to much later uh, Western interference, slave trading and so on. But the population itself uh, was actually very well suited to growing food in very difficult soils. And um, we can tell that from things like their bones. So we can tell what they were eating, they were eating fish, ways they were actually um, handling their soils. They were using manure, they were using special types of agriculture, which actually fitted that really, really difficult environment. So again, we've got this new science that's really overturning some of those ideas that are based on not very much evidence, um, some, some sort of most theories, but actually not evidence. So it's, it's sort of similar to what I've tried to do in River Kings is to actually look what does the science tell us? How does that fit with the archaeology, with the evidence? Um, and for Easter Island or for Apanuri, um, it's actually quite a different narrative than the one that's been really popularized. 
Any chance that it was the Vikings on Easter Island? <laughs> well, so I think actually to Heyerdahl, um, whose collections I worked on, did try to show that they went all the way to South America, but I think uh, unfortunately he was he was wrong. So no evidence of that. Well, Kat Jarman's really um, a lovely conversation, brilliant book. You're 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 rewriting the science or the the art of history in an important way in this new book. Uh, it's a bestseller in the UK. I'm not sure is it is it out in the US? River Kings. A new it history of the I think last week it came out, so it's literally just out now. So yeah, um, yeah you can buy it by. It's the kind of book that it, it certainly needs the same attention, I think, in the US as it's got in the U UK and, and Europe. Congratulations on that! Thank uh, you. In, Feb in early February 2022, Kat, what else should we be reading in addition to the River Kings? Not the River Kings, River Kings. <laughs> There's no yeah. Well, I think if you if you quite like history, um, I would definitely recommend. Uh, this script, which is called The White Ship by Charles Spencer, goes a bit beyond the Vikings, so the next step in that mm. history. And it considers one particular event in 1120, which is the sinking of a, a ship that uh, carried the only heir to the throne of England. And um, with the death of Sir Henry I's son, it, it basically just completely threw the, the country into uh, chaos. And it so what's the book called again, Kat? So it's called The White Ship by Charles Spencer. Do you know him? Um, I do, yes. We worked together recently. Um, we all have um, to introduce me. We'll have to get him on the show. It's a good yeah. way of getting the best talent. Just as you were introduced to me by uh, William Dalrymple, I'm going to I'm gonna leverage, just like the Vikings networked around the world, I'm going to network to get, uh, not Charles Spencer, right? Yes, Charles Spencer. He's not a relative of Diana, I hope. Uh, yes, uh, her brother. Her brother? Yes. Oh, good. Maybe we can talk about Diana too. Anyway, Kat Jarman, lovely to have you on the show. Wonderful conversation. Uh, congratulations on the River Kings. You're working on a new book. Love to have you back out, uh, back on the show when the book comes out. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. It's great